right. Well, I think uh, appropriately we'll start first with Oliver's question. Um, would you like to read it, Oliver? Uh, I'll have to see if I can pull it up. I can read it if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead, because I don't have it handy. All right. Oliver's question concerns consciousness, thoughts, and language. I have a question related to consciousness, thoughts, and language. You often refer to the brain as the limiting factor on how consciousness can express itself in NPR reality. We have to use language when we think thoughts. But we can also think in language during an out-of-body experience. So the limiting aspect of language cannot be located in the brain. There must be a different interface between consciousness and language-based thinking that is beyond our NPR brain. Can you say anything about this interface? If we have the English language on one side of this interface, is there a universal language on the other end that's also being used for telepathy? What can you say about this universal language and its relationship to consciousness? Yes, that, uh, that last statement you made, uh, Oliver, I think that, that seems to be it. There is this seemingly universal language that is used for uh, consciousness to communicate with consciousness that we would call telepathy. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting, very interesting question because, for instance, um, if I go to some other PMR-like place and I go and um, assume a, a physical body in that, physical, in that particular physical reality, in that virtual reality, I have no trouble with language. I mean, it's, it, obviously, they're not speaking English. English is a historical occurrence of what happened on this particular PMR but I have no trouble understanding them. They have no trouble understanding me. How does that work when we obviously have different languages? Or if you run into entities that uh, have never been in a PMR, they've always been um, somewhere in, the, in what we would call non-physical. Of course, everything other than our universe we call non-physical. So there's some other, uh, they've uh, existed always in uh, some other uh, non-physical reality from our perspective. And there's no problem at all uh, communicating with them. Well, I think the way that works is that you can't speak a language without thinking about the thoughts that you speak. When you speak, first you, you, you form thoughts in your mind, and then those, those thoughts get expressed in your personal language, whatever that has to be. But it starts out as thoughts. And those thoughts, then, can be picked up as data and interpreted by any other consciousness through this, as you say, kind of a common and universal uh, telepathic language of data from consciousness to consciousness. Now, I would imagine if, you were, if we kind of progressed back in this evolution of consciousness to the point that there was the, there was the uh, AOM or the larger consciousness system and it was splitting off pieces of consciousness, the whole point was these things were going to interact. I mean, that's the idea. Well, if they're going to interact, they have to have some method of communicating if they're going to interact in any meaningful way, if they're going to share data anyway. So I would think one of the very first things would be that a common language among individuated units of consciousness would have to be created such that the interaction that was necessary to uh, lower the entropy of the system could take place. So it makes sense that there would be such a common language of consciousness, if, if you like, that uh, now that same common language of consciousness uh, makes it unnecessary to learn, um, you know, any specific language like English or French or German or, you know, 
Swahili or any other kind of language because you always think before you talk. You, you get the ideas together and then you voice them in your own language. Well, if you can, if that language at the thinking part, that's consciousness. So then that can, that can go out and other consciousness can carry on that conversation even though they, they uh, are not, you know, um, studied in your, in your particular language. So the languages we speak here are all historically based just in PMR, but we have no difficulty understanding any other consciousness anywhere in any language. Um, you know, I guess we call that, in, a, in, a, in some ways we call that empathy. You know, we're empathetic to other people. If you see somebody uh, or hear somebody or, or whatever, you can, you can have a sense of how they're feeling. Some of that, I guess, would be gesture and facial uh, configuration. But you can kind of have a sense of what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And I think you get that from this nettedness of all consciousness more than you really get that from analyzing the, uh, the situation or the, even the facial uh, features and, and, and gestures. You, you get all of that together, all masses together to give you a, a single input. So it is an interesting thing why language isn't important in the uh, out of body. Of course, you know, language in, in the brain, you know, the language isn't really centered in the brain. Language is in the consciousness. The, the aware component of you is consciousness, not, not in the brain. And the limitations of the brain upon language is basically the, our limitation of, of what we can, you know, how much can we process, what can we understand? Is it outside of our limits of, of uh, what our rule set would allow or not? As long as it's inside the limits of our rule set. In other words, we're not doing anything that the rule set can't support, rule set and evolution can't support, then anything within that boundary is, is okay, it's fair game. So language fits into that category. Now, another interesting thing is that uh, when I get information or when anybody gets information from another consciousness, you can only understand it in as much as you have the concepts in your mind to understand it. So you're limited by your history, by your knowledge, by your beliefs, by your fears, by everything that kind of makes up what you know and understand that limits what you get. So if you're getting concepts that are not in your background whatsoever, it's just like nothing was said. Or the person's just looking at you but didn't actually, you know, send the message. The message may have been sent, but you just can't interpret it as anything uh, that's meaningful to you. You see? So sometimes when you when you meet that entity, and uh, you know, you send out something, and you wait for the reply back, and nothing happens, and you think, well, they just didn't want to talk to me. Well, that may not be the case. You may just not have had the the uh, experience to make any sense of anything that was sent your way. So, we have this language in in uh, consciousness to consciousness kind of um, telepathic language, if you will. But that doesn't give us the vocabulary and the concepts that are universal. The concepts and vocabulary are limited to what we have generated 
in this lifetime here in this PMR, what we understand. And that's the, that's the way we have to bring it back so we can express it in language and tell somebody else or even make it clear to ourselves. Now we can get to a point, and one of the other questions is going to touch on this, I think, one of Polly's questions, is that you can get information back that you can't translate, but you kind of get the sense of it. But if somebody said, well, what did that mean? You'd go, well, I sort of got a feeling for it, but I, I can't tell you. You know, you have that kind of a sense. So you can get some, some kind of a, well, we call it a shadow, maybe, of the information and what's going on, a little bit of a sense of it, but you can't specify it. You can't really describe it. So it stays very, very fuzzy to you. It's more in the world of feeling than it is in the world of, of language. So we can get some small amount of communication at a feeling level that is very non-specific, but that's about it. So we are limited by, our, by what we know and by our experience, um, but we have kind of a universal connection that we can pass data back and forth, but we'll only be able to correctly interpret that which we have kind of the fundamentals for interpreting. So that's a, that, now I say all that not from any theory, I say all that just from, that's my experience, you know, that's the way it seems to always be. It's not a necessarily a theory why it has to be that way, as it is just, uh, that's the way I found it. It's a, it's a very interesting question, a good one to have asked, uh, Oliver. And I don't, I don't uh, presume to know all the answers of just why it is that way and how that works, but that seems to be the way it works. Yeah, just one quick remark, which actually got me to ask the question, because I recently read something from a linguist, Noam Chomsky, you probably heard of him, he's quite famous, and he had this idea that there must be some kind of universal language that's born, uh, that, that we are born with, and then we learn our individual languages, and they somehow attach to that. And now he's probably a total materialist, and he has... Um, no, he's, no, he was not talking about anything that you were talking about, but somehow that fits very well with what you just said. And I think that's absolutely true. I, if you look at the way young children, babies, learn language, you know, they obviously don't learn it because you lecture them, you know, and you, you lay out a bunch of things and they memorize, you know, the, the, the definitions of things and so on. They get it very holistically. You know, the way they learn language is almost, you'd say, by osmosis, you know, the language just seeps into their system. It's not a matter of, uh, of uh, them sitting down and memorizing things. Stuff just begins to make sense as they, as they use it and struggle with it. And it's a, it's a process that is very efficient. And my thought would, would be one that would agree with Chomsky completely, is that if they had to intellectually analyze out that understanding of language in order to be able to speak, we wouldn't have any children speaking, you know, until they were 10 years old, you know, they, they wouldn't be speaking at, uh, you know, two, two and a half, you know, putting sentences together. Um, the reason they can do that is because they are getting the message, the understanding of what that sound means directly, you know, um, telepathically, if you will, consciousness to consciousness, they, they're getting it. And now all they have to do is put words, put sounds to what they're getting. That's a whole lot easier than just having to learn a language from scratch. 
So I think he's I think he's probably correct, and he probably comes to that conclusion just in the same way I mentioned. He probably looks at it and says, "Geez, if, if children had to you know do all this through intellectual effort, they wouldn't be, they couldn't be as good at it as they are as quickly because they don't have the capacity for intellectual effort. You know, here they are learning language. They're only two and a half years old. They're making up short sentences and things. They seem to understand a lot more than they can say." They understand probably two or three times as much as they can actually speak because speaking is a controlling muscles and, and uh, getting the, the sound to sound right. That's more difficult than actually understanding, yet they don't have yet a, a capacity for analysis. Intellectual analysis is not something that a two-and-a-half or a three- or a four-year-old you know, does very well. So how are they getting all this language? I agree with them. I think they have to be getting a telepathic component to go along with their experience, and out of that, they, uh, you know, they just begin to speak without memorizing anything, without uh, analyzing anything, and they're not worried about what they say as verbs or nouns or adverbs or how, what's the structure or the syntax or any of that. It's just, uh, it's not an intellectual, rational thing that they're doing. It's just an experiential thing that they're that they're doing. So yes, I think we're all netted with the with a common language, um, and the younger we are, the uh, more likely we are to to uh, get that language and, and deal with it. The older we get, we kind of we kind of um, what uh, push those things aside. We don't pay any attention to it. We uh, we don't give our intuition much credit because that's how we'd sense that language would be would be through our intuition. And we think our intuition is probably full of baloney most of the time, and we don't pay much attention to it. So the older we get, the less able we are to actually use that intuitive channel directly, like the children do. But children, young children have one foot in NPMR and one foot in PMR. They're kind of a mixture of both for a long time. And uh, it'd be a very natural thing for them to do. Some animals are like that too. Some animals, uh, many animals, uh, Seem to confer, con, seem to uh, converse telepathically, both with humans and other animals. They kind of know what's going on, without actually, you know, processing language. Well, how do they do that? We only know what's going on when we process language. We think, but that's not true. We we know it on that intuitive level as well. We just don't deal with that with our intellects. So, but animals aren't so burdened by the intellect that we are. They don't have that. So they're wide open to their intuition to receive those kinds of messages. That's something that what Rupert Sheldrake was, was uh, experimenting with. You take a, um, what the dog uh, would know when his owner was on his way home, that sort of thing. He did some pretty interesting experiments with that and shows that somehow the dog does indeed seem to know about some event that's taking place, you know, 10 miles away. And uh, right on the second of when it takes place, the dog reacts. So that's because the dog isn't burdened by our intellect. So it doesn't uh, learn, it doesn't outgrow that, in, that connection to its intuitive part. Okay, thanks for the answer. Tom, I think the telepathic component that you were describing uh, that children have in learning languages probably explains why they're so good at learning foreign languages. Children seem to learn them very easily, and adults are very inhibited by 
by ego and by um, intellectual process, would you say? Yes, that's true. I've known several uh, young children grown up in multilingual families, and you know, by the time they're five or six or seven, they're perfectly, you know, uh, accustomed and conversant in all the languages they grew up with, and it's not like uh, you know they're not behind in any of them really. They uh, they learn very quickly. I think you're right, and that's why I say that little that little boy we saw in the movie that uh, that Oliver showed us. Uh, just before we started, was that he was still young enough to be very much in touch with his intuitive side. And I think he was intuiting a lot of what he said. It seemed kind of uh, odd that he had come to all of those conclusions because of his analytical you know, assessment of these big questions so much as he was still connected to it as intuitive side. So he got those, those answers and happened to be bright enough and have a big enough vocabulary that he could express them. So obviously he was a very smart little boy with a uh, unusually large vocabulary and an ability to understand things. That's why he could actually get the message and pass it on because he had the concepts that he could uh, that he could use to describe what it was he was getting. Whereas maybe uh, other children his age or younger wouldn't have those concepts, would get the information, would sort of understand it on a on a feeling intuitive level, but wouldn't be able to explain it. It would just come out as gibberish because they, uh, you wouldn't be able to understand what it was they were saying. It wouldn't be as clear as what this, this young guy was saying. All right. Well, the next question I think you might have been referring to, Tom, comes from Pally that ties into Oliver's question. Senses other than the ones known to us in this PMR. Have you experienced in NPMR something like the five senses we know but just different? And if you experience more and more unfamiliar conceptual information, do you then still assign some interpretation in form of our senses? Um, the way, the reason that we seem to have senses in the non-physical, you know, and yes, I have seen, I have felt, I have smelled, you know, I have touched things in while being out of body in NPMR. So you have all these senses. But those are just interpretations. You get information, and you have to interpret it into your own concepts, into the way you, you know, in, into your basis, if you will, your knowledge base and experience base. You have to ter interpret what you get in terms of that. And our knowledge base and experience base are in, ter in terms of our senses. Our language is in terms of our senses. Language is all about, you know, what you see, feel, you know, touch smell, that kind of thing. It's all sense-based. So yes, that's why you have senses when you're non-physical. It's not that there's some kind of special non-physical senses that you've got. It's just that you're interpreting the information in terms of your senses because that's the only way you can interpret the information. That's your knowledge and experience base and you can't interpret it any other way. So yes, we go into the non-physical and we see things, we hear things. And uh, we don't as often smell things, but I have had, you know, plenty of instances where, you know, aroma and smell was part of the experience. Well, it's just part of the way I interpret the data that I get. Now, is that interpretation accurate? Does it really, uh, is it really the data that I got or is it just my mangling, you know, my filter that uh, mangled that data? Well, of course, it's my filter, you know, mangles the data. 
um, two different people will interpret that data differently because they have a different, you know, uh, knowledge base and experience base. So then, then people say, well, see, that's all bogus because, you know, two people, they say something different than obviously they're just making it up because if they were really getting that data, they'd say the same thing. Well, that's not the case. It's a, it's a, it's a subjective, um, it's a subjective experience. It's a subjective interpretation and it's based on what you bring to the table. That's why it's personal. That's one of the reasons why I don't tell a whole lot of people about the things I saw and heard and felt and smelled because they're mine, you see. And unless you have my knowledge base and my experience base, then it's not yours. It won't make, it won't tell you the right things. You'll interpret it in some way that's different than the way I interpret it. And now you've got something that is, well, and I won't necessarily say it's wrong, but it's, I can't convey it to you in a way that you really understand it, that the way it is. And I feel like I'd have a, as high, if not a higher probability of confusing you as of giving you any useful information. So that's part of the reason why I keep these things to myself. They are individual and you'll interpret what I tell you in your own way, which depending on how kind of far out or how removed from our everyday experience, my experience was, your interpretation is going to be vastly different than mine. So there just is no point. It's why everybody needs to go and find out for themselves rather than uh, listen to what somebody, how somebody else interpreted the data. That's uh, kind of a, a fundamental. Unfortunately, that's not what everybody would like for me to do. Everybody would like for me to tell stories about, you know, adventures in the great non-physical, but that's really not useful. It's more entertainment value than it is, you know, real value that would help somebody uh, grow up. So yes, uh, you do have senses there, but only in your imagination, only in your, only in your interpretation. You don't really have eyes and ears there. You just get data. So if I understand correctly, um, senses uh, are maybe similar to what also our language is because they give us opportunity to do something like uh, perceive information, intake of information, and in a case of uh, language express uh, data that is then transformed to information on an individual basis but at the same time they also limit us in uh, in the respect of what we know if we don't have a word for really for example agape as the concept uh, is somewhere defined then we really maybe focus on the word love in the romantic or sexual sense right there was a there was a uh story, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I've read it in a couple of sources about, um, I think it was Cortez when he first came to the Americas and he ran into some of the uh, natives who lived, I guess that would be in Mexico. And it was reported in his log that they could not see his sailing ships. As far as they were concerned, he somehow just kind of walked out of the ocean, you know, uh, which made him a lot more godlike, I suspect, in their in their vision. But they could not see his sailing ships, and he wondered about that. Entered it in his log, and of course we can look at it, we can look back at it and say they didn't have any concepts, they didn't have any uh, uh, way to interpret that. It was so far outside of their own experience that they got nothing. You know, they didn't interpret it as, oh, what's that big funny thing out there that 
sitting on the water, they just interpret as what thing, you know? It just didn't compute. And I think that's what happens often with us when we, if we get something, some data from the non-physical, particularly if we're conversing with an entity, sometimes it seems like we just don't get it. They're not really telling us anything. Well, it doesn't mean that's true. We just don't get it. It's like seeing that we just don't see the ships because we don't have the concepts. And I'm sure the same happens to them when we try to send them data. They just can't get that either because the two backgrounds are so different that it's really hard to communicate. I mean, we have that on a on a uh, everyday level. If you go to somebody to someone else's culture that's very different than yours, you know, like East and West, you know, take somebody that out of rural, you know, China and put them in what's the opposite, New York City. You see, you probably have a hard time communicating. And it's not just language, you know, it's concepts and culture and, and uh, ways of being and things to do. It's just very hard to communicate. Um, even if you had a translator, one of these little, uh, you know, uh, computer translators who would translate all the words that probably wouldn't help a whole lot. You know, it, uh, it'd still be very difficult. So imagine the difference, you know, if the difference between China and New York, imagine the difference between physical and non-physical, you know, other, other universes, other places are just the non-physical. Well, that's a couple of order magnitudes more different than just rural China to, you know, to a Western city. And you can see there's a lot of communication problems going on there. So it's, uh, it's not as simple and straightforward as it, as it might, as it might first appear. That's why a lot of people get different things. They have trouble communicating. They're not sure what's being said. Um, that's because often they're not sure how to interpret what's being said. It doesn't really make sense, so it just comes out as, as gibberish or nothing at all, like the ships. It's just a blank. I've learned so far in my life two languages by exposure from mostly TV or movies, uh, English included. And I have the theory that um, mostly we don't really lose the maybe so so much uh, the capability to really learn easily new languages but we uh, we have this impression the belief uh, limiting belief that it's hard that uh, basically what is taught in our schools the methods uh, are not enjoyable and with this uh, everything every learning is each learning is uh, more difficult and especially for languages because they are so foreign uh, from start from, from the get-go and um, I, regarding to this, I have the feeling that uh, going into NTM, NPMR data streams, uh, I probably also need to learn just by exposure the languages, the, the way how to interact, how to be uh, in there. So I, is, is my assumption correct in your opinion that uh, to learn basically to interpret uh, in NPMR, I just needs to be there often enough? Yes. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the problem that we have as we grow up, it, it, you know, it's not so much that we learn our, or we lose our ability to learn languages efficiently. I mean, that is true, but it, it's not so much a loss as it is that we believe that you have to attack every problem intellectually, right? And learning of language will go much better if you don't try to, you know, make it an intellectual process, make it an immersion process. Live in it, think in it, uh, you know, try to try to connect to it in, a, in an intuitive way, and it'll start to come much better 
than if you try to sit down with a book, memorize all the rules, and you may do well on a test that way, but you still can't, you know, you still can't, uh, you know, speak the language. That's our problem as we grow up and get older, particularly in the West, everything that we do and accomplish, all of our tasks have to have an intellectual solution. And it's the same, of course, if you're going out to explore in the non-physical, if you go with the idea that everything you, you experience there is going to be analyzed intellectually, you have to understand all of it intellectually. So you've got this intellect just sitting there waiting to analyze and process all the information, it'll be a tough, slow go. Better to just go and be open and kind of move with the flow of things into it and kind of deal with things in a broad, non-specific basis until you gain enough experience to make it more specific. That's the way children learn too. I mean, they learn language in very non-specific ways, you know, and then it gets more specific as they, as they get older. Um, that's, you know, you'll notice that young children, as they, as they learn a word, like I have a, I have a grandson, uh, and he has a, he has a dog whose name is Junior, and he's always been introduced to dogs as Junior, and now in his mind, the word Junior is the generic word for dog. So when he sees a dog anywhere, it's Junior. Well, actually, it's not Junior, it's Nunior, you know, because the J doesn't work too well for him. So, and because he has three other little boys that are about a year younger than him that stay with him all day long, all of them now are convinced that the word for dog is Nunier. And any one of them sees a dog, it's Nunier, Nunier, you see? So that's learning language in a very general way, you know? He's got a general sound for a dog, and that'll work fine for him until he gets older and, and then makes that more specific and, you know, kind of refines his word. And, but all language is like that, you see? But when you try to learn it intellectually, you want it to be fully correct and specific from the first utterance that you make. So we study it with our intellect, and that's a very tough slog. That's real hard to do that way. Better to just get in with it, immerse, intuit it, practice it, do it. Don't wait you know, until you really are good at it before you start speaking with people. Just stumble your way through it and be open to it, and you'll do it a lot more quickly. That's the way we, we started it. Yeah, so again, it's the truth that uh, anything can be done easily more with a uh, low approach, meaning open, playful, uh, easygoing, the same like meditation, probably. Yes, makes almost everything you try a lot simpler. We tend to get in our own way more than anything else. It has to be a game to be easy. Thank you. Next, thanks. The next questions have to do with uh, learning in PMR and MPMR. Uh, Pally submitted a question that that asks: Are all forms of lessons in PMR or NPMR equal in their effect to our being, and can we learn something painful in our dreams or MPMR exploration to avoid it within PMR? Sure. It's you know, every, all the data you get, all the experience you have, you can make choices about that, whether you're in a dream, whether you're in a daydream, you know, just in your imagination. 
it matters not. If you're having an experience and able to make choices, then you're able to learn from the choices that you make. So everything, all realities, uh, including just what we call just imagination, all realities are uh, learning platforms, learning tools, if you will. You can learn things anywhere, any, any kind of place where you exchange data. So that's, Polly says, sinking, uh, I think his ship is going down. Uh, good, he got bailed out. I'm here, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yes, uh, all realities, you can learn in them. That's why we have like uh, a dreaming reality. Why, why do we need a dream reality? Why can't we do it all here? Because in the dream reality, you can get, you can get different situations, dramatic situations, uh, death-defying situations, you know, all those things that you can have that you wouldn't want to do here because the results here, you know, have, have more long-lasting consequences than in the dream reality. So there's things that you can do in a dream reality that aren't practical here, and yet it's experience. And yes, indeed, you can learn from it. You should learn from it. You should be aware of it. You should pay attention to it just like you do this experience. There is no useless experience wherever you get your experience. You know, people, uh, when, if, you have, if you are not an ad, adept uh, speech maker and you have to get up in, in front of, you know, say three or four hundred people to make a speech, how do you prepare for that? You usually get your speech and you start giving it. Typically, you give it aloud someplace quietly, you know, in a room where, you know, you don't embarrass yourself, you know, in front of everybody else, right? So you, you seek solitude and then you do it and you do it again and you do it again. And you imagine yourself walking up to the podium, standing there, looking out at the audience and seeing all 200 people and what it is that you're going to say. So then you start speaking and you get partway through and you get all tangled up in your words and you go, I don't want to go there, you know, and you make a mental note, you know, don't walk down that blind alley and you do it again. And after you've done that 10 or 20 times, you're good at it. You're really good. You know that speech and you can walk right out there and do it perfectly. Well, that's a matter of learning, right, in your imagination. You've just worked through all that in this other reality frame, which we call imagination. And uh, that experience is valuable, very valuable. It's easy, it's easy to control. You don't have to actually stand up and give the lecture, you know, a hundred times in order to get good at giving it, which, which is good for us. Right? So yeah, everywhere, everywhere, Polly, every experience you have, you should be looking at it from what can I learn from this? What's the lesson there? And uh, the, the second part of the question was basically aimed to ask whether in general, not always in general, whether or issues we have in a life, maybe a more underlying issue, more, more underlying fears, are we are confronted uh, with them in MPMR, either in dreams or maybe in our imagination in daily dreams, daydreams. And uh, they manifest after many chances uh, of working on them in MPMR. Uh, only after that chance is given, basically they manifest after some time in our PMR. Could that be true? Yes. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes the things you do in a dream will never manifest here. They're just things that you're going to do in a dream. Sometimes it's in preparation for something that's going to happen here. You know, you've got some major decision or some major 
when I say decision, I just mean choice, some major way of being or acting or dealing with something. And in order to prepare you for that so that you have a higher probability of getting it right when you get to it, you may have a, a, a series of lessons to prepare you for that. But all dreams aren't like that. Sometimes they're just experiences. And uh, almost always they're experiences you can learn from. Not always, you know, but most of the time they're things that you can learn from. And sometimes they're in preparation. Sometimes they're uh, precognitive. They actually give you a, a look at what's likely to happen in the future. So dreams are just another reality in which we can exist and interact. And it's no more or less real than this physical reality. It's just different. Sort of like, um, you know, the next uh, level of, uh, of uh, relativity. You know, Einstein said there was no fundamental inertial frame. Well, there's no fundamental reality frame. All reality frames are equivalent. They're just different. And it, it depends on the perspective of the observer. Wherever the observer is, that reality frame seems physical. And all the rest seem non-physical. But none of them are really any more physical, non-physical, important, unimportant, you know, unimportant than, uh, than any others. It's just all different. They all have their purpose. So essentially, uh, maybe the message to um, all the materialists uh, in the world would be to take their dreams more serious, even though they may be just a figment of their imagination, because anyway, uh, they get benefit from reliving the situations there and bring it uh, as an experience later on into their physical lives. I would, yeah, I would think that the message to the materialist would be that the figments of their imagination also have significance. <laughs> Don't write things off because they're a figment of your imagination. Imagination is just another reality frame in which you can have experience and things, and things can happen. So use it. Use all of your reality frames in which to grow. Don't put some down because, oh, it's just a figment of my imagination. We can ignore that. That's, uh, you know, cutting yourself off from learning opportunity. So the idea would be let, let every, let every um, experience that you have, no matter where the reality frame or how it may or may not relate to this reality frame, be a potential learning experience and see what you can gain from it. Sure. Since we're on the subject of learning in uh, MPMR and PMR, um, can someone learn more easily in PMR than in MPMR? Well, some things, many things. Um, you know, go back to what a little while ago we were talking about the census. One of the reasons that in this Physical reality is PMR. Um, you know, our reality is generated through our senses, is because that makes it a consensus reality. That makes it a multiplayer game. You have to have a reality defined to the local players through their senses in order for you know all the players to see the same thing. So because they all looking, it's it's defined through what they see. So if it's defined through what they see, then they see the same things, and it's a it's a uh, you know, multiplayer game on on a single map. So that's what the senses do. That's that's why this is a good reality for learning. It uh, puts us all uh, having to uh, you know share the same space, if you will, and interact in that shared space. That's a different 
that's a different kind of uh, connection than having than like a chat room, if you will, where there is no really shared space. It's just communications drifting back and forth without the shared space. It's it's much less um, uh, much less traction, much less feedback in that uh, that situation. So uh, I don't know. Tell me, did that answer your question, Donna? Or do you want? Uh, yes, yes, that's very good. Also, um, there have been highly evolved beings um, that have come to this PMR. What brings them here, and what can they accomplish here that they could not accomplish in NPMR? Well, here you have all these other entities to deal with in this shared space, just as we were saying. And that gives this shared space a very special ability to challenge us. We're challenged by the other entities here. It's the interaction among entities. If it was just one individuated unit of consciousness and a bunch of plants and rocks, it wouldn't be a very effective learning tool. It's a much more effective learning tool when there's 7 billion of us all bumping into each other, all trying to uh, figure things out and uh, all full of you know our own fears and our own ideas and our own concepts and all of this kind of banging together, if you will, of, of all the IUOCs and, and the, the, the plants and the rocks and everything that's here makes a tremendous amount of novelty, creates a tremendous amount of, of uh, opportunities for choices. There's lots and lots of choices because of that. It's a, it's a rich stew of choice, and we learn through making choices. So coming to this reality frame, this PMR, is a much faster track in evolving the quality of your consciousness because of that, because of the richness of the choices we have here, than it is if you were just in this kind of chat scenario where you're just sharing data with, with other entities. This is, uh, there's more feedback here. So you, you get the results of who you are kind of come back at you in obvious ways because of the, of the uh, nature of a, quote, physical, unquote, you know, reality. It's just a reality with a very tight rule set is, is uh, kind of what makes this seem physical. And uh, what we call non-physical, which is everything else other than the reality we're in, all of that's non-physical then the rule set is, is much more open. A lot more things can happen. You still have choices, but the choices are not as well-defined, and they don't have as much feedback as here. So this reality is a, is a very good reality for learning. It's an excellent reality for learning. Not that you can't learn if you just were in non-physical. Some beings I've met have never been in a physical reality, and uh, they were not... Uh, incapable beings. They had learned and grown in their own way, but it's not as immediate or as quick as if you come here. The next question is concerning healing from Raj. Uh, some people have the ability to heal using non-physical power such as Adam Dream Healer or my father-in-law although not as advanced as Adam, in the interest of serving humanity, it appears to be a noble act that they strive to heal as much suffering as possible. However, by doing so, they may be interfering with another's evolutionary path and thus doing a disservice in the big picture. How does one decide if a potential healing would be beneficial in the big picture? Well, there are many ways to do that, but 
I guess the first thing I should say is, um, you know, once you learn something, once you understand something, you become responsible for that knowledge. Okay, so once you learn that it's not nice to grab other children's toys and that that is not a good thing to do, now you have a responsibility not to do that. But before you really even realized that that was maybe a rude thing to do, you just go grabbing toys without thinking. It's not such a, you know, you don't get, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a black star for grabbing somebody's toys if you don't realize that that's a problem. So it's the same with healing, particularly when people who, who begin this or start it, they're just healing everything that looks like it. It's a problem. You know, any, somebody has a headache, you heal it. Somebody has this, anybody comes to you, you just heal it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're just trying to do as much good as possible. And in the beginning, I would say that's what you should do. You're just learning. You're, you're developing your skills and your ability to focus and that sort of thing. Eventually, though, as you get better at it, you realize that sometimes you're getting in the way. And the reason that you'll, you'll figure this out is you'll heal someone and they'll get over that, but almost immediately they'll get something else that's, you know, different, but just as debilitating or threatening or whatever the first thing was. And then you heal that and they'll get something else. Or if they don't get something else, then they'll be in an automobile crash. You see, there, there, there's some trauma they, that they are working toward in their life. That's a, that's an expression of who and where they are. And if you take, away one of them, they'll replace it with a different one. And that kind of gives you an idea that maybe you're just messing in and they're trying to, you know, put it back. Another way is that you find some people are very easy to heal. Your intent can just make marvelous strides in healing them very simply and very easily. And others, you'll clean up that, you know, that uh, energy body and it'll be all nice and shiny white and healthy. And then you'll look back at it in an hour and it's all cruddy again, just like it was before you started. And you'll clean it back up, and it'll get cruddy again. Whereas other ones, you clean it up once, hey, they're better, they're healed, thank you very much, they go on their way. You say, well, why is that? One of them is probably because what was wrong with them was just, you know, falls in the random category, how the cookie crumbles. You know, they just happened to run into a virus. You know, they just picked up the handle, put their hands on that handle of that grocery cart just after some child with a runny nose had been sitting there, you know, pulling, putting germs all over it. They didn't know. They grabbed it. You know, they rubbed their eyes. They get sick. It's not that the sickness is an expression of some need of theirs. It's just cookie crumbled that way. You know, it's, there's random components going on. It just happens. Well, when they're that kind of a thing, they're easy to heal because there's no investment in that, that illness. It's not an expression of some deep something going on in their life. It's just stuff that happens. And the ones that don't heal quickly, the ones that the, that the uh, health hours keep, uh, you know, going right back to diseased again, and it's a struggle. You have to work on them a lot, um, you know, four or five times a day, every day. You have to keep working at them. And sure, that person will feel better and better and better, and then you stop working at it, and, you know, it kind of all goes back. And that means you're working on something that is better left alone just need to leave that. It's not working because you are interfering with the process and that process reasserts itself once you get out of interfering with it. Or like I say, it'll assert itself in a different way. So then you start to realize 
see, this is after you've been doing this now for some years, you begin to realize that, you know, it's not all the same. You really need to be a little sensitive to what's going on. For one, you shouldn't just see that somebody's ill or feeling bad and decide you're going to heal them. You might wait for an invitation for somebody to ask, or if you talk about it and say, yeah, I do that sort of thing. And then they say, oh, great, could you do that for me? As opposed to just assuming that it's your mission in life to heal everyone that's ill, you see. Or a lot of times people will ask to be healed, but really at a deeper level, the, the illness is something they've brought on themselves and they need to experience. It's part of their feedback, if you will, okay? So these are things you'll get sensitive to, that a healer will get sensitive to over time, and they'll know when to back off and, and when you know to not back off. But all in all, it's not that big a deal. It's not that serious an error to try to heal somebody who really needs the illness, because they're more in charge of themselves than you are. Eventually, they will will all, you know, it'll all go back to the way it was. They'll take care of it. Um, sometimes you can give them a break, just a break so that they can think a little bit more about where they're going and what they're doing and give them a, a place to contemplate. And that will then enable them to change their minds and go a different direction. So in that case, you can heal that person or give them an opportunity. Not that you really fixed them, but you just gave them a break from the pain or from the you know, the problems of the illness, just to maybe clear their head and take a different direction, and they'll do that. So I'd say generally follow your intuition. Don't, uh, don't start feeling too concerned about what you're going to do to them. Be sensitive to it. But uh, if it's something they need, they will reinsert it after you're done, or they'll reinsert it in a different way. So you're not really going to do something so terrible. It's just like you will annoy their process. You'll get into their thing. You'll change it around. It won't work the way it was supposed to work. You'll make them go do something differently or in a different way. You'll maybe draw something out that otherwise would have had a quicker conclusion. So you become a nuisance, but you don't become a, you know, you haven't done something horrible. So that's the, that's the idea. So when people are starting to do this, I say, don't worry about it. Just do it if it feels right. If you feel like that's a good thing to do, do it. But just be sensitive. And if it's not the right thing to do, it's not going to be a big problem. Just be sensitive and learn from it. So that's the way I'd say. Now, you take somebody like Adam or your father-in-law, they probably have been doing this long enough that they realize that there's some things they should just let go. But when you realize that, you almost never tell anybody that. If somebody says, please, I'm, you know, I have this problem, you know, can you help me? And you take a look, you don't want to say, no, I think you really should have that problem. You see, because they don't understand that this is maybe on their path and it's part of something they need to do. That's not in their reality. You can't, you can't express that. You're not doing them any favor by saying something like that. All you're doing is probably enraging them, you know, and they think you're, you know, the most arrogant person in the world that you could judge what they need and what they don't and they need to be ill and they just won't process that day the way you'd like them to. So basically you say, yeah, sure, sure, I'll work on it. I don't know whether I can help or not, but, you know, and then what you do is instead of trying to force that illness, you just send them 
energy such that they can use it to help themselves go in the way of their own choice. In other words, you try to give them some perspective and some, some energy that they can use any way they wish rather than really trying to heal a particular you know, physical problem. Now, they may take that energy and heal themselves with it, or they may not. But at least you've given them the opportunity what to do with that energy. If they choose not to heal themselves with it, then that's just the way it is. And you have to let everybody know that, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That way they're not uh, too upset. If it doesn't work, well, it was a good try, but it just didn't happen to work in this case. And sometimes, most of the time, that is, it's really because you didn't try to heal it because it seemed like it was a bad idea, but you can't. You can't bring that to people. It's not something that will be helpful to them. It'll just probably make things worse for them than, rather than be helpful. So that's that's the way to approach that. But, uh, and I'm sure these, your father-in-law, if he does this uh, often, he knows when to ease off and to let something go. He just doesn't talk about it. You, you keep that to yourself because it's generally not, not helpful to talk about that with the individual. Now, if that individual was really aware and they really were, you know, understood their illness, the nature of it, you know, what, it, what they might learn from it and so on, maybe you could talk to them about it. But that's probably one in, you know, 100,000 people or something that uh, are that aware. Yeah, my father-in-law, he's been doing this for a few years, and uh, he has reached the conclusion that uh, it's usually just better to let things be the way they are. So yeah. now he's at a stage where he doesn't really do this a whole lot unless right. uh, people really you know ask him and maybe in special cases he would but generally he just kind of like just leaves things the way they are right that's typically the way it works your father-in-law is, is uh, on a very familiar trajectory typically you first get the idea it's oh wow gee whiz you learn you grow a lot through the application because you have to have good focus. You have to be able to, uh, you know, get rid of the noise in your mind. So it's helping you gain all these skills. You do it. You help some people. That's good feedback. And eventually you kind of learn that, you know, it really doesn't make that much difference. Everything's kind of, the, you know, it's opportunities for learning is what's important, not making people feel better. So if that illness gives them opportunities, then that's a good thing. And you begin to realize that, the world's pretty well optimized the way it is without you rearranging it to suit yourself or, or some other person. But only when people come to you and ask and really need your help and then you go help them, but you just yeah. assume let it go. Yeah, I understand that completely. That's the way it is. Now, other times you might take somebody like Adam who's gotten a lot more press, right? He's much more well-known and there may be another thing going on there. He's very uh, good at what he does, and he's more high visibility with it. I don't know. I guess books have been written, you know, videos have been made, uh, that kind of thing. So part of his game may not only be to heal people, but to help open people's minds. You see, that's another service that he's rendering is to help open people's minds because these people he heals plus all the people that they know plus the 100,000 people that see the video and read the book and whatever, they're all now seeing a bigger aspect of reality that they didn't know of before. And that's worthwhile all in itself besides the healing. So that's another component. 
So if that's part of his mission, you see, then that would keep him more visible and, uh, and doing these things. And that then is a trade-off that uh, probably uh, is worth the aggravation he may cause some people by healing when they really uh, you know, don't need to be healed. So there's, there's multiple things that might be going on there. You had another question, Raj. Um, would you like me to read it? Yeah, uh, go ahead, Donna, please. In this consciousness evolution virtual lab, everyone is getting the experience they need based on their past choices. Fear-based choices will create suffering, yet people suffer in many other ways on our planet that may not be a result of past choices. Many are born to unfortunate circumstances, poverty-stricken situations or physical disabilities, and others grow through some, go through some undesirable experiences in their younger years that limit their ability to acquire even basic needs of living. Does providing assistance or help to these unfortunate people interfere with their evolution in the big picture? Well, that's a very similar question to the one about healing. You know, does healing people uh, interfere with them? And again, the answer is very similar in that the helping these people, being a helpful person to them, is a learning experience for the helper. It's good for the helper as well as the helpee, right? The person that's being helped gains, but the person doing the helping gains a lot too. So in the big equation, you have to look at both of those. So yes, you should help these kind of people. Okay, and the fact that this person receives help lets them know that there are people out there willing to give help. There's people out there who care, you know, that's a very positive thing too. Um, so I'd say in general, yes, indeed, you should be helping these people. You should be working for, you know, social justice. You should be working to, you know, help feed the hungry and do these kinds of things. These are good things to, to do. They not only help you grow, but they're helpful on the other end. Now, does that mean that some cases you might not, you know, get in the way of somebody's lesson? Yes, you might. You know, there may be somebody who is on hard times because they created those hard times and they need to experience those hard times in order to learn from them. Otherwise, they'll just do it again, you see, and maybe that help doesn't help them. But you take all of the positives. You know, we're looking at this for the, for the uh, maximum decrease in entropy in the whole system. So you take all the positives, which is the positives for the person being helped, the positive for the helper, the positive for, you know, the rest of the world. If that person gets up out of poverty or whatever you're doing to help them, you know, what are all the positives? And then what's the negative? Well, if there's a whole pile of positives and the one negative is, is okay, he's just going to have to do it again. You know, he's going to make the same error again because he didn't have to suffer the consequences very long of, of his actions. Well, then, that's probably a small negative against a lot of positive. On the other hand, if it turns out the other way to where there's a more negative than there is positive, let's say the person doing the helping isn't doing the helping just because they want to help. They're doing the helping because they think they should. It's an intellectual thing, not a being level thing. They're helping out because all their friends are helping out, and they want to, you know, they want to be cool and do the same thing. But uh, they're only there for the appearance and for the fact that it makes them look good, you say now they're not gaining anything at all. So there's no plus up for the person doing the help there because they're helping for the wrong, you know, wrong reason. It's the wrong intent. And if then you're taking away um, 
a uh, consequence of somebody that would that needs the consequence well now the negatives may outweigh the positives you see so it depends every situation is different and there may be 10 people helping this individual or doing a program that helps lots of individuals some of those individuals may benefit greatly from the help some of them may actually be hurt by the help some of the people doing the help may be doing it you know from the heart and out of love and some of them may be doing it out of out of uh, ego and image so the whole thing is just a big mixed bag of all of this stuff going on. And in general, if the positives outweigh the negatives, it's a good thing. You see, if the negatives outweigh the positives, it's not such a good thing. But it's also not such a disaster either, probably. You know, if, if the person just has to do it again because they didn't learn it, learn it last time, that's not really a disaster. It just slows them down. They'll, they'll have to have another, you know, another time to do that. So anyway, it's, it's hard to tell mostly. So what you do is you just work from your own intuition. What does it feel right to you? What's your intuitive connection to this? Does it feel like this is something you ought to get into and work at? Then go do it. And don't worry about should I be doing this or not. Just do it. And if you start to feel like eh, I don't really get a good feeling about this, I'm not so sure we really ought to be doing it, then stop doing it. You see, so if everybody works from an intuitive level and a level in which you're connected with, with all the other people. See, once you're on an intuitive level, it's not just you and your intellect trying to assess what's going on. It's you're in touch with that person you're helping. You kind of have an empathetic connection with them. You see where it's going with them. What are they getting out of it? Are they just getting more, you know, uh, like I, my children uh, always spend every uh, – uh, week before Christmas, working for the Salvation Army, trying to lay out the toys. They have a Christmas um, angels program and some other things where they collect toys out of the community, and then they give them to poor people. And they have these literally thousands of toys and stuff that they have to sort, fix, you know, and then put in piles for specific children against their ages and what they wanted. And it takes a lot of labor to do the sorting and and uh, and uh, collating, I guess, against the against the recipients, and they always ask for for volunteers. So when my children were about 10 years old and older, up through until they got married and left house, every Christmas they'd be down at the Salvation Army and working for the week before Christmas, doing that with those people. And then they would also be there when those uh, people came in on the day before Christmas to pick up their stuff to take home for their kids, you know, the, the toys they got for their children. And my children learned a lot by doing that. Some of the people that came through to pick up toys for their children were very surly and, is this all I got? You know, kind of a thing. Or, you know, you know I wanted a bicycle. I didn't get a bicycle. And others were to the point of, in tears, grateful for whatever they got. So she, they saw both sides of that. You see, some people were being helped by this. Other people weren't being helped at all. You see, it was just helping them maintain, uh, you know, bad attitudes. So it's a, such a mixed bag that go do it. Go do what you feel is going to be helpful socially, um, you know, physically, whatever. Add to your community. This is, a, this is a thing that a lot of people miss, and that is if you are aware, you know, as you become more love, 
you don't become more detached. You as a, you as a, uh, you know, you as an aware person need to be connected. You need to be involved with what's going on in the world and in your community. The idea of, well, I'm grown now. I've, I've raised, you know, I've raised the level of quality of my consciousness to a certain level. I kind of sit back and watch all those poor fools out there, you know, doing their stuff to hurt each other. And I don't want to be a part of it. You know, I just sit back and kind of watch it all go from afar. That's not good. You know, that's based on, on ego. That's, that's arrogance, really. You need to get involved. You need to stay attached and connected. You know, get involved. That's, that's better because that's where you make the difference. That's where you get to share, you know, your light. And that's helpful to people. That's where you get to be a good example. Not sitting, you know, sitting somewhere on, on a big pillow, you know, with, with uh, you know, or in your cave, you know, uh, feeling sorry for all the poor peons out there uh, struggling because you've, you've already gone through that struggle. That's not the appropriate attitude. You should be involved. And you just, your intuition should attach you to all sides of that. The people that are on your side being the helpers, why are they helping? What's the nature of this organization? What are they doing, you know, and what, and is it good? And on the side of the people being helped, why are they there? What are their needs? How did they get there? And how will this help them? Is there something else we could do that would help them better than this? You know, like you teach a man to fish, right? Teach a man to fish rather than give a man a fish. And, uh, you know, one of them is a lot more helpful than the other, that kind of thing. So then you can be part of it. So people should not get the idea that the more you learn, the more aloof, and detached you are from the hustle and bustle and the meanness and the fear and all the rest of it. You should always remain connected to your community and, and to your world and see what you can do to, to help. But just be attached to all of it such that, I mean, be connected to it all intuitively such that uh, you know when that equation has gone from more negative to more positive in the big picture. And if you don't know, well, just take your best guess and keep on working until you do know. It'll become more obvious with time. Yep. Thanks, Tom. That was a very good answer. And I guess one of the points that you made that it's also beneficial for the helper, uh, not just the people who are being helped. Um, I think that's a very good point because uh, my wife, for example, you know, she's been uh, sometimes taking her kids to these uh, homeless shelters and just helping out, let's say, on a weekend, uh, just serving food and things like that. And our children who are like pretty little, you know, one of them is nine, the other one is seven, but they come back very humble from that experience, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what I feel is that exposing young children also to um, those situations and showing them like how much suffering there is out there in the world and also sometimes just getting to look at some other kids in the world who don't have nearly as much as what kids in North America get, it just kind of like humbles them down. And I think it's also a learning experience for them uh, when they try to help um, other people who are not as fortunate. Exactly. It broadens their world. You know, children growing up in a household, their whole world is that household. It's only between they go to school, they start seeing other kids at school, but they don't know how those children live. They don't know what their families are like. You know, they don't know their circumstances. And to see just a little bit of the circumstances of the world by being in a program like that, that's very educational. That's, that changes their whole viewpoint of, yep. 
of the world and I think in a better way. That's why I always volunteered my children and I volunteered them for the first time or two, but after that they look forward to it. They, they went on their own. The first three or four times, you know, we would all go and uh, the whole family would be there. But eventually, as the kids got older, you know, they got to be teenagers and things, they made their own arrangements, you know, and they would go and, and uh, they were completely on their own. It wasn't like mom and dad drugged them there, you know, they, they uh, were very interested in it because they got a lot out of it. And I yeah. think it does help mature children to see a bigger picture of the world in, in that yeah. sort of way. You know, you, you, they don't have to, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, be thrown out on the street and, and meet starvation to learn. You know, it's it's better if they learn in kinder, gentler circumstances like that. But uh, it's a it's good for them. You know, very yeah. very good. Yeah, I mean, they had this uh, drive at school to collect uh, money for some kind of a disaster somewhere in Asia. Maybe it was in the Philippines or something. And you're very surprised when the older one he contributed like hundred dollars from his uh, savings, which was like hundred and fifty. So he donate donated more than you know fifty percent of his savings towards that cause. Yeah. And yeah. that's a lot to expect from like a child who's nine years old, right? Yeah. But uh, I think uh, yeah. it's these experiences that is uh, making them, um, exactly. you know, think like that. Yeah. Well, on this same theme, uh, Pally has a question: Are violent or brutal lessons in PMR or NPMR a needed stage of development which everybody everybody needs to go through? Uh, no, everybody doesn't have to go through horrible things, you know, violent things. Um, and as much as the world has been pretty violent and pretty horrible over the last, what, 5,000 years, you know, and or so, I suspect most people have seen that kind of thing in their many incarnations. They've probably experienced that, but that's not a requirement. It's not like you have to experience everything. What you have to do is grow up. So if, if that is required for you to grow up, in other words, if, that, if that's a growing thing for you, and that would be just the experience you need in order to learn the lessons that you need to learn next, then yes, that would be a, you know, that's probably in your plan that you'll, you'll do that. But if that's not, if you can learn without that, if you can grow up without any of those horrible experiences, well, you don't have to have any of them. In other words, the, the idea isn't you have to have at least one of every experience possible. That's not the way that it works. It works in you need to grow up and you need to have whatever experiences that will help you grow up. Okay, so perhaps if you are uh, um, full of uh, arrogance and superiority, you may need to be in a situation where you get taken down a peg or two for how wonderful and superior you are, you know, you get to see it from the other side where the arrogant and superior people, you know, are basically uh, have you in their control. And that would be maybe a good lesson to learn. But if that's not your lesson, then you don't have to go there. You see? So, you know, sometimes people, it's, they get the same idea with karma. You know, oh, I stepped on somebody's toe. Somebody's just step on my toe, you know, in the next life. It's not a tit-for-tat, uh, you know, experience for experience, and you have to experience everything. Everybody has to be murdered, and everybody has to be a murderer. I've heard that, and, you know, and that's nonsense. It's not like that. Everybody doesn't have to be a murderer, nor does everybody have to be murdered. Everybody has to learn, and they have to have those experiences that best uh, raise their probability of learning. And that's what you do. So... Uh, 
Yeah, it's not uh, it's not as simple as, as just experience. It's what you get from the experience. It's how you interpret and what you take away from the experience is important, not really the experience itself. So basically we have just this, well, I always hear that uh, life, uh, m the meaning of life is something complicated, but from your books and also from my experience so far, it seems quite straightforward, lowering the entropy as you say it. And basically this is the one main lesson which can be learned in, in almost uh, um, unlimited ways. Uh, and uh, to think that uh, there, there are some books or maybe some spiritual concepts uh, saying that we basically really collect uh, one from each experience or one from everything that uh, you are saying it's not like that, correct? That's what I'm saying. It's not like that. You don't have to do that. You have to grow up in all ways. You know, you have to get rid of, you know, of all of your fears and, and uh, beliefs and so on. You're growing up. And it takes a variety of experiences to help you do that. Obviously, you can't just have one experience and, and then learn all the things you need to learn. It takes a variety of experiences, but it isn't that you have to experience some of everything. You just have to experience what you need to experience to grow up, to learn. And we all learn differently. In fact, the, the more you learn, the easier it is to learn without being hit between the eyes with a two before, you know, to get your attention. Um, in your very early stages of learning, pain is about the only motivator that ever seems to work. In your later stages of growing up, you don't have to wait till the pain starts before you grow up. You kind of already, you kind of see what's going on, how oh, I get it, you know, and then you go learn it without all that. So your life becomes a lot more pain free a lot more joyous. Uh, everything works really well because you don't need that kind of stimulus anymore to catch your attention. So, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not experience focused. It's growing up focused and it's whatever it takes. So if you, uh, you know, if you don't need to ever experience anything horrendous in order to grow up, it's just good for you. You know, you've, you've done it in a more efficient way without all that. If you need those kinds of experiences, then you've got them. But besides that, and it's not just that experiences are tailor-made to fit people's needs. It's kind of roughly like that. But there's a lot of things that happen that just happen because, you know, that's what we call, you know, the cookie crumbles thing. It's just random. Stuff happens. You may happen to be, you know, in an, you know, in an accident or in a situation that had nothing to do with you. Like I said, you grabbed the grocery cart handle just after, you know, a disease got laid down there. Or you're driving, you know, minding your own business, uh, being very careful, and somebody comes across the median strip and runs right into you. You see, these are things that just happen because you're in a multiplayer game and other people are also exercising free will and making choices, bad choices as well as good choices, and you're part of that game. So you get, you know, you're, you're part of this mix. So sometimes bad things happen. You get murdered just because you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong day. And it's not any big thing you had to learn. Well, you got another life to work on, you know, you'll get it again. It's just you have to think of this lifetime isn't your, your one last shot, you know, at uh, lowering your entropy. It's just another chapter in a very long book. 
And if you happen to be unlucky and you just are at the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong day, well, you've got all the rest of your existence. You know, you're an immortal soul. You've got all the rest of your existence to work on that. It's not a, a terrible thing, you know, that happens to you from the big picture, even if it's a terrible thing that happened to you in this little picture. So that's, you kind of have to have a bigger, you know, a bigger focus on what's going on. So every experience we had, we have isn't tailor-made to fit our needs, though in general, the kind of the, the uh, form factor, if you will, the, the big frequency uh, is kind of focused on the things that we need. But within that, there's all this random stuff that can go on, and we just have to deal with it as it happens. And we do the best we can, and partly that's good because you'd never be very good at planning all the details. If you tried to plan all the details of your life, it would probably be a disaster because you're just not that smart, you see plan all the details and optimize them. It's much better that the details just happen, interactions, and there's feedback and all of that, and you get to deal with it. That's a much richer soup of, of uh, choice than something that you've laid out as a plan. So that's not nearly as rich and creative as the stuff that just happens. So yes, life is uncertain. Everybody doesn't, you know, everybody that gets murdered didn't deserve to get murdered because it was their time for the experience. You know, I mean, that's silly. You know, things happen and we deal with them as they happen. Some, almost everything has a opportunity embedded in it for growing up. There's almost no experience that you can have that doesn't have an opportunity for growing embedded in it. You know, you can, um, oh, what was the guy's name? Um, I've used him as an example a couple of times and now it kind of jumps out of my mind. He was uh, a Jewish put in a concentration camp in World War II, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, and he, no, it wasn't Rudolf Steiner, what was it, um, it was a different guy. Frank anyway, Frankel. Frankel. Yeah, that's it, Frankel, yeah. So he comes back a better guy than he went in. He learned from it, he grew from it, he became more out of it. Instead of being broken and full of self-pity and unable to function, which many people would be after that kind of a horrendous experience and very bitter and so on, he wasn't. You learn from it. So even the most horrendous of experiences can be learning experiences if you can find the, you know, if you can find the silver lining right in that black cloud, uh, we can grow up from them. So that's another thing. Yeah, there's a lot of randomness happened and uh, happens, and there's always opportunity though in that randomness. We just have to find it and have be able to reach out and grab that opportunity and make something of it. So there's hardly anything that's wasted whether you're born amongst, you know, the poor starving, you know, people of, you know, who wherever they're poor and starving these days, you know, it used to be a Biafra, you know, but uh, if you're born and you're a starving child someplace like that, well, you do the best you can. Maybe there's a lot of love in such a place. You know, maybe there's a lot of caring in such a place. You may learn a lot there. You may not live long, but it may be a very productive life. You may be some other place where you have lots of stuff, a full belly and, uh, you know, uh, lots of money in the bank, and uh, you don't learn much at all. So we can't say that the person with the full belly and money in the bank is much better off than the starving child in Biafra. They may or may not better. depends on what they learn, what opportunities they grab, you know, as to whether it was an advantage to them or not to be there. So it's not all about what feels good what makes us you know, happy all the time. It's what can we learn? 
So we have to not judge the, the poor and the destitute and think that there's nothing for them to learn, you know. Well, they've got things they can learn as well. And no, maybe their life is very difficult, but difficult isn't the point. What are you learning? You know, how are you growing from it? I think the more stuff you have, the more, um, I don't know, the less uh, challenge that you have because you've got a full belly, you've got money in the bank, you've got everything you could need. What's your, you know, what drives you to go out and learn? Why, you know, why don't you just kind of kick back and let everything go by because, you know, you're fat and happy? Well, what happens is, is you've got all the stuff, but you're unhappy, you're unfulfilled. You're not satisfied with your life. You see, you have a midlife crisis because you wake up at, you know, 45 or 50 years old and you figure you haven't made anything. You know, all you've done is turn to crank at work and, you know, receive the check for it. So you're still not happy, even though you've got all that stuff. So you can't just say that the poor people living in terrible circumstances are necessarily doing worse than we are. We may be doing worse than they are. Depends on how much they're growing up. Their life is tough and it may be short, but that's not the point. The point is, what did they learn? How did they grow? And no, they were all, they were constantly hungry, which gets in their way of meditation and calming their mind and doing it, but you don't need all that. If they had good relationships, if they had connections, if they uh, were able to just accept what was going on without anger and without resentment, and just deal with it. What a great lesson that would be to have all that hardship and just learn to accept it and deal with it. That's a big lesson all in itself. So there's much to be learned in almost any environment. It's just learning's different. Here, because we have everything we need, our learning has to do with sitting down in a quiet, warm, you know, uh, comfortable spot in a nice big chair and, you know, closing our eyes and saying our mantra and meditating and do all this sort of stuff because that's what we do here because we're very comfortable and that's a way we go to process, you know, our conscious data stream. We do meditation like that, but that doesn't mean that's the only way. And that's the only way that anybody can learn. There's lots of ways you can learn that don't require the comforts of a soft chair in a, you know, in a pleasant environment in order to meditate. So we have to look at it with a bigger picture, not just the kind of the narrow picture. It seems to me that, uh, at least from my own experience, that uh, we are basically learning from any source, uh, anyway, uh, even if we think that we are not in a suitable spot. For example, if somebody is reading a, let's say, good book like Seth Speaks or like your trilogy, uh, he takes away something from it, like you said the last time, maybe 10% in average. Uh, and then uh, the second time he's changed, he can uh, have another go and he takes more from it. And I, I just wondered at one time that if, if there's some, um, if, if uh, all the concepts you intended to uh, include in your trilogy are absorbed theoretically by su such person who really uh, rereads a lot, uh, maybe on the next go, he will discover something you didn't want to put there and uh, then more and more and it seems to me it's like not really remembering but something like that if, if you're ready then you get it somehow uh, either from a book or from an experience or while uh, watching uh, the sheep uh, grazing on some pasture <laughs> is it this, uh, do I understand it correctly or 
what, what's your view on the sources of learning? You see, the thing to, to keep in mind is that your growth is not fundamentally an intellectual process. You know, you can read the books and you can memorize every word of it and be able to repeat it by heart and that necessarily won't help you learn anything. You see, it's not just an intellectual process, it's a being level process. And everybody has to travel their own path in their own way because they have a unique experience and knowledge base. They have unique interpretations, unique things that mean things to them. So they have to go on their own path, you see. So you can read somebody else's book because it'll give you ideas. It'll make, it'll, you know, connect the dots for things that you hadn't thought of. So in that way, it kind of helps you along, but you still have to think of it. You still have to see how those dots connect. And then you have to apply that to yourself. What does that mean to me? And then you have to apply that to you being differently. Now that you realize this, what does that mean? What new responsibilities do you gain? Uh, what insights do you have? And how is that going to change your life? And if you don't get to that last step, where how does that change my life and actually change your life, then it was just an intellectual exercise and doesn't really mean anything. Or maybe it just set a spark and maybe a decade later, things will connect and it'll mean something. Well, that's good too. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not uh, an intellectual process. It's a being level process that, uh, like you say, you get it when you're ready. So you just have to be open. You have to get rid of those beliefs because they'll narrow down the, you know, the data you can see. You got to get rid of those fears because they push you and pull you all sorts of ways that are non-productive. And then you just follow your path one step at a time, eyes open, experiencing, taking things in, um, and it happens all on its own. That's why I call it, what, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, it's not a thing you go out and do. It's a thing you you build on. It's a thing you, you uh, create as you go. I liken it often to an athlete. You know, an athlete just one day doesn't wake up and say, oh, I want to run a marathon and I want to do it, you know, at an average of uh, five minutes per mile. You know, well, they do that. The ones that win the marathons are running in around five minutes per mile. But they don't just do that because they decide to do it one day. You have to work at it and work at it and work at it. And slowly you pull yourself up at the bootstraps. In other words, you gain the, the, you know, the coordination, the skill, the efficiency of your lungs, you know, putting oxygen into your system, all of that stuff builds up and you can do it. But it's not like it's an intellectual process. You don't read books about running and then go out and win a race. You know, you got to just do it and do it and practice it and be it. And then, you know, you get better and better. And it's the same thing with growing up. You just don't, can't read about it in a book. You just have to go do it. You have to be aware. You have to want to change. And it's about changing yourself. It's about becoming somebody else and who you are now. It's about growing up. And if you have that as your incentive and you keep working at it, you will have success. You know, this, this idea about, oh, I've worked at it and worked at it and nothing ever happened. Well, you, you probably worked at it from an intellectual perspective. You read books, you tried processes, you did other things, but if nothing really happens, it's because you're not internalizing it. You're not taking it on. You're not, uh, you're not changing at a fundamental level. So that's the thing. Yeah, there's learning everywhere, opportunities everywhere. And um, it's just how can you grasp them and internalize them and then grow from them rather than just 
um, you know, notice them, kind of nod your head, and then go on and forget about it, which is what most of us do most of the time. We don't grab those opportunities. We just bump into them, you know. They, if they knock us down, we just get up and kind of dust off and go on as if it never happened. You know, we don't really try to learn from much of what happens to us. Okay, John has a question. In the past, you've stated that you were sent to other PMRs on jobs or focused missions. Is this a duty we can partake in, much like the job you can get helping entities transition from PMR to MPMR after death? Perhaps, but not quite so easily. If you wanted to uh, uh, get involved in the transitions, that's a much easier thing to do because it's like, could you, could you get a position or could you get a job at your local hospital as a volunteer? Sure, right? They always need volunteers. You can walk into any hospital anywhere in the country and say, hey, I'd like to volunteer. You got something you'd like me to do and nobody's going to you know, turn you away. There's always things that you could do. And that's kind of the way it is in a transition area. There's always things to do. It's a big deal. There's lots and lots of people going through it all the time and they can always use extra help. So that's kind of easy to get that kind of experience. Uh, as far as doing specific things in the larger conscious system, that's something that has to, you know, I guess you have to make yourself available and then somebody has to come along and, and give you the, you know, give you the mission, if you will. So it's not as easy a thing to do, but is it possible? Do you have the potential to end up doing that? Sure. Everybody does. That's, um, you know, if you honed yourself real good to where you were really an excellent violin player and you were super, super good, people would know that. That would show because you would play a concert or you would do this and then people would come to you and say, hey, could you, you know, could you do this for me or could you uh, play for my record label or could you play at my daughter's wedding or, you know, you'd start getting invitations to do special things, but they come to you kind of invitation. It's not quite the same as volunteering at the hospital where it's, it's, uh, there's always something available for you to do that. But yes, you can end up doing that. Just get available, be useful. I guess that's the way it is in anything. Make yourself useful. You know, if you learn to play a violin really well, you're useful to everybody who would like to hear violin music. You know, and if you are uh, very much aware of, of uh, you know, you get around in a non-physical and you have the skills that you can be helpful, once you're useful, People will be aware of that, and people that need those skills will come and seek you out. So that's kind of the way that works. You just get good, and, and uh, once you are, can be a, a really good contributor, people who need that contribution will come find you. Josh, did you have a question also? I'm sorry. Uh, John, did you want to add to your question? No, okay. Josh, go ahead with yours. Well, John started there. Okay. We're not That's getting any audio on that. Um, do you want to try again? Let's see. I think John's mic is uh, turned off. Yeah, it he is. just typed, uh, thank you. That was great. Okay, good. Josh, go ahead then. Yeah, my question, uh, as I was typing out, it, it became kind of long, so I'll try to, to summarize it. But basically, 
I guess uh, it kind of clicked for me after the last couple uh, of these virtual chats where um, I realized that whenever I was meditating, you know, I was expecting things to come at me kind of like in a lucid dream where I can see everything three-dimensional and everything was real clear. Uh, otherwise, I would just disregard it. And so um, <clears throat> shortly after the last virtual classroom, when I was meditating, I, I just kind of tried to um, you know, silence my mind and just be open to anything that came. And uh, the first thing that I got, I got an impression of something like a, like a, uh, like a, a, a forest or a jungle that was kind of foggy. And I took it to mean that it was, uh, you know, my awareness was kind of get, being groggy. So I focused on just making myself, you know, less kind of sleepy and just more awake and I did that without processing it too much and then I got the impression of somebody kind of pointing over their shoulder like follow me and kind of pointing uh, straight ahead and so I took that to mean that um, you know I would just kind of try to focus more on the blackness uh, in front of my eyes and I did that and then you know I, I felt some movement and it kind of jolted me um, and so I tried to you know settle down and then uh, go back at it, and then I, I felt the movement again, and it kind of jolted me out of, out of the uh, the state as well. But the question I had is that you know I, I'm trying to find the line between balancing, you know, processing what's going on during meditation versus analyzing it too much and kind of getting kicked out of the state. And it seemed to me like I was kind of on the right track. And so with what I just described to you, does that sound does that sound like I'm I'm on the right track uh, where I'm not analyzing it too much, but I am you know, processing it while it's happening. Yes, absolutely. That's on the right track. That's a, that's a major um, discovery when people realize that one, you don't need to be foggy and two, stop having expectations. As long as you expected it to be a visual, you know, a lucid dream kind of an experience, that was your expectation and you threw away anything that wasn't that. Okay. Uh, then, once you started uh, paying attention to other things, you know, one thing led to another, led to another. And I think the reason that you got those series of things leading to each other was like, hey, this guy's paying attention. Let's see if he gets this. Okay? So they give you a picture. Oh, he got that. We're actually communicating now. Here, follow me. Let's take you someplace else and see if you get this. Oh, you followed that. All right, let's, let's kick him in the seat, make him jump. And, and see if he follows that. And then you lost it because it, that, that jolt was uh, a little too much. But yes, that's, uh, you're on exactly the right track. Just be, be open, be aware, and go with, you know, with what happens. Have an intent that you want to learn, that you want to connect with something. You want to you know, experience that, that will be meaningful to you. So have that as your intent, and the system will try to provide that, but you've got to pay attention. It's not necessarily going to just feed you what you expect because that's not really going to be very helpful to you. You won't learn as much that way. So, yes, you, you got it. You are, uh, you're doing the right thing. Just be open to it. Now, eventually, you will have to think about it and, and do some analysis on it. You know, let's say you do this for three or four or five months, and then you kind of see where it leads you. And if it looks like it's leading to a place that's interesting, then keep encouraging it. If it like it's just, you know, you feel like a puppy chasing its tail, you know, and nothing's going on, 
then you need to change it. You need to maybe change your intent or say, hey, you know, this is not going anywhere for me. What's, you know, let's, let's change. Let's do something else. And you maybe need to, to uh, instead of, uh, I don't know, instead of the way you process and change your process, um, work with it in some other way. Just kind of randomly assert yourself and see what that does. But in, basically, if you just open yourself and follow, that will get you a long way rather than having an expectation of the way it's supposed to be and uh, or belief in the way you think it, it should be, that just gets in the way. So, yeah, Josh, you're, you've, you've hit on it. And you don't have to be in that foggy state. Just wake up. Be clear. And uh, as long as you stay focused in what's going on, it's all right that you're clear. You know, as we were saying before, you know, imagination is another reality frame. Okay, and where there is a point where a lucid dream, an out-of-body, an imagination, I think of a Venn diagram, you know, and they all have overlapping, you know, they all have over, overlapping circles to your basic awareness. So don't throw any of them out as being less real or less valuable than the others. Just open to the, whatever happens. But be clear enough that it's a clear thing happening, because if you're foggy, nothing much is going to happen except you're going to drift around in a fog, because that's the way fog is. So get clear and then just let happen, whatever happens, and take it from there. And six months later, analyze it. See whether you think it's been useful, whether you've learned anything. And if so, keep going with it. And my guess is you probably will. You'll probably be pleased with it six months later, even though right now you have no idea where it's taking you or what it's going to do. But just follow it and see where it goes is the best thing. There's a difference between thinking with your, with your uh, intellect and you can think, you can be rational at the being level. It's only when the intellect is serving ego that the intellect is really a part of the problem. That intellect can also serve at the being level. It can just be aware without analyzing, without judging. See, it's the analyzing and the judging and the, uh, that sort of function is generally tied up with the ego with your expectations and with your beliefs. So you let that part of your intellect go, but you still have a part of your intellect that can function without, <coughs> excuse me, without being connected to ego, just at the being level. <coughs> that part of your awareness is what said, all right, I'll just follow this. I'll just get clear and let it happen. <coughs> Talking too much, got a dry throat here. <coughs> Ah, sorry about that, or, uh, Oliver. A little work for the editor, though. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, while we're on the same topic um, that Josh brought up, uh, you know, I had a uh, few experiences that I talked to you about, uh, and they were happening mostly spontaneously. These uh, out-of-body or, you know, lucid dreams turning into out-of-body, right? And they happen for several months and maybe about 14 or 15 experiences that I've documented. And and then since then, ever since we met last time, you know, I, I told you about it, but nothing's happened since. And I am living pretty gracefully <laughs> with the fact that, uh, you know, I these aren't happening right now. They'll happen whenever they're supposed to. But in the meantime, I'm still trying to meditate and um, 
I just feel that uh, you know that connection that I had back then is is not happening anymore. So you think it's just something that's not important to my learning right now? Is that why, or should I just still continue, keep trying, trying to meditate, or what should I do? I suspect it's something that's really not uh, important for you right now. Maybe there's other things that are important for you right now. Yeah. One of the one of the problems that most people have in uh, having non-physical experiences is that they pursue them. They want them. They're yeah. they're after them, and that just gets in the way. So when you kind of let it go to the point that it really doesn't matter anymore, you'll probably find that they start happening again. Yeah, that may yep. be that may be the part of the lesson. Another thing is that it's perfectly natural, it's perfectly normal for the activity that you have, and let's just say out of body to pick to pick one, yeah. that it comes in cycles. There'll be times when it's every night you're doing something. Every night you're out of body doing something. And then there'll be other times where you go for three months and never do anything. And then maybe a couple of months after that, you'll start getting back into it and then it'll get maybe heavier. It tends to come in cycles. And part of the reason I believe for that is that it gives you time in between to process. You know, if you have too much of it all at once, it becomes more like a carnival ride. It becomes just one experience, another experience, another experience. You're piling all these experiences up, but all you're doing is having experiences. You're not really learning a whole lot. And you're not really processing. It becomes a, just a thing to do. And then you run in, you know, and that's not, you're, you're piling up too much experience without enough processing on that experience to learn from it, you see. And then you have some time to basically process that. What did it mean? What did you learn? What were you doing? What was it that was your beliefs? What was it, you know, how much was it your ego? Uh, what was this and that? And, and you can start to process all that stuff down, and then you kind of forget about it a while, and then it starts back up again. So it's, it's a normal to run through dry periods and then very active periods. So if you run through a dry, and those dry periods may be for three, four, five, six months. And the active periods can be like that too. They can, they can really be very active when they are. But once you learn to process everything kind of as you have it, and it's not just, you're just storing up a whole bunch of experiences, like you go to the carnival and you ride the, you know, the, this ride and you get on the next ride and the one that spins you upside down and then you get on the next ride and you just get as much experience as you can because it's fun, so you just do things. Uh, when you get out of that mode to where you actually feel like you're learning from each one, each one gives you a little bit of, you know, you got questions from that. Well, what did this mean? And if I take that further, what will that be? And how is, you know, if you can, if you actually make it a kind of a study, if you will, rather than a running from thing to thing to have the experience, then you won't necessarily have so many dry spells. But most people don't do that. Most people just experience because it's a gee whiz for them. And then they stack up all this experience with very little value coming out of it. And then you run into a dry spell. I kind of think that's why people mostly cycle, but I've had those cycles too. You know, I've, I've gone through periods that it's all the time and periods where it's hardly ever. Um, generally, that hasn't been my case in the last probably decade or so, but earlier, I definitely went through periods of, of uh, a lot of activity and just very little activity. And I think that's why. I think it's a matter of processing that. If you're having experiences without learning anything, then you're kind of wasting your time.
and you need to step back and take a look at what, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, is this an ability that uh, you can develop, sort of like learning how to play the violin? Because, you know, there is uh, these out-of-body guys out there, they've written books, guys like um, Bruce Roberts and, um, you know, William Bullman, and those kind of guys would lead you to believe that it's sort of like an ability that you can practice and hone and develop, and then you can almost sort of do this at will whenever you want. Um, and that's so true. that sort of, yeah. yeah. You can do that. Um, that's definitely possible to do, and it's, you know, I should say it's not even all that hard to do, but it's probably not something you're going to do quickly. These guys have been doing this for, you know, 20 and 30 years. Eventually, they've had, they've had their busy times and their dry times as well, too. They had to learn this and, and uh, you know, find value in it as well as you. You're pretty new starting on the path, and you'd like to get to the endpoint as fast as possible. And that's, you know, it just takes time and patience. But yes, if you keep, if you maintain an interest over the next 20 years, you'll be just like them. By that time, you will be able to go out of body anytime you want to. And it'll be just on demand and, and not a problem. It's kind of hard right in the beginning because this is a learn as you go sort of thing. There's nobody can really tell you too much about it. They can give you some techniques, but it's all trial and error on your own. Yeah. So it's a slow process. Okay, thanks. Yeah, don't try to rush it. If you try to rush it, it just slows it down. All right, along this same line of uh, questions and answer, um, Polly has asked, are we downplaying the importance of imagination in this PMR? He has um, done some research in group imagination experiments, meeting at predefined locations and trying to um, ascertain identifiable activities and things and things like that. Um, would you say that this exercise that is similar to what some call astral projection, what Bob Monroe called out-of-body experiences, um, would you say that, um, uh, would you recommend this as something for people to try to exercise this way? It, it kind of reminds me of the experiments you and Dennis did with, with Bob Monroe in that you were isolated and you met in one particular location. It seems like this is what uh, Pally is trying to duplicate. And these are exercises. He's calling them exercises in, a, in imagination, but I think it's similar to what you did. Yes, we've used, we use these labels. You know, things are out of body, lucid dreams, remote viewing. Um, we have night dreams, we have daydreams, and all of these are terms that have more to do with our beliefs and how we get to a particular state than they actually have to do with the state itself. Okay, so the imagination, you know, well, let's put it another way. You can have an out-of-body experience and you can come back and say, wow, I really had a, a dream, or you could say, I wasn't really dreaming because I was awake. It was all in my imagination. 
these are these are uh, the perspective, you know, of the individual, right? They can say it's in their imagination. They can say it's a dream. They could say it's an out-of-body experience. Uh, they could, uh, if they'd fallen asleep first, they could call it a lucid dream. So all of the things like this uh, are similar in that you are. Well, here's the here's kind of the qualifying thing. If when you are doing this. You are not physically focused here. Your focus is not here. You may hear the traffic in the street. It's not that you are totally removed and you no longer hear the traffic or somebody comes up and taps you on the shoulder, you don't notice. You still kind of have an awareness maybe of the body and where you are, but that awareness, you're not attached to it. You're not processing it. You're not connected to it. So when you disconnect from the physical reality from this virtual reality, you basically you're disconnecting from the data stream. You're no longer operating on it. No, you didn't take a machete and hack that, you know, that data stream cord. You still have the data coming in. You're just not paying any attention to it. You're not operating. It's there in the background. And as soon as your mind is focused someplace, it disappears like most any background thing is, you know, stuff that's going on in the background right now in your house wherever you are, you know, listening to this, there's stuff going on in the background. And as long as you're really focused on what's being said, that stuff disappears. You don't even know it's there. But if, when you're not focused and your focus kind of come back, you can tell, oh, yeah, there's somebody out there doing that. And I just heard a car go by and the dog's barking in the neighbor's yard. And you kind of know that. But then as soon as you get focused again, that stuff's gone. You see, you're not aware of the neighbor's dog barking or the car's going by. You, all that disappears. That's what I mean by not being attached to it. It's not that it's not there and you can't sense it if you want to. You're just not operating on it. Okay, when you get into that to where you are no longer operating in this physical reality, this virtual reality data stream, now it doesn't really matter what you call it. Okay, you are someplace else. You're not here. You're not connected to this. So if you want to call that that now you're, uh, you know, what, um, your imagination is off doing something, well, that's a safe thing to call it because, you see, if you call it your imagination, now you haven't, you haven't um, kind of pushed your credibility button. You haven't uh, challenged yourself. You're no longer, uh, you're not claiming to have done anything. You say, oh, I didn't necessarily go out of body or anything. Any of this woo-woo stuff that I don't know is even real or, you know, you haven't, you don't have this belief issue to deal with anymore. It's just my imagination. Okay. That's the way remote viewers work. If you ask a remote viewer how he works, it's just, he sees it. It's like in his imagination. He just uh, lets the world go. He disconnects. And he has his intent focused on what it is, where he's supposed to go, you know, what he's supposed to look at, coordinates or whatever else. And there it is. He gets a picture. And he's just learned not to overlay his intellect on top of that, not to judge it, just to get the picture, be open to it, and report it just as it comes, whether it makes sense or not. He's learned that. Okay, so what is he doing? Is that just his imagination? Well, we could call it that. Was he out of body? Well, we could call it that. Was he having some kind of lucid dream? Well, probably not because he didn't fall asleep first. So he didn't have the right process to get there. But 
you know, you see what I mean? It doesn't really matter what you call these things. Once you let go of this physical reality, the, the, the name that you call it is irrelevant. You are no longer here. You no longer are connected to the physical reality. Your body's here. There's still data coming in in the background, but it disappears as your focus goes elsewhere. That's an altered state of consciousness that allows you to remote view. And what is out of body if it isn't remote viewing in some other reality frame rather than this one, right? I mean, that's one way you can say it, right? Um, anyway, so these things are all connected. Imagination is, a, is undervalued in the sense, as we say, we put a just in front of it. Oh, that's just imagination. Like, that's not real. That's not significant. That's not important. You can just imagine it. But what's great about that is it's also no pressure. You don't have to learn a technique to imagine something, do you? We don't have to learn all these techniques. I don't have to imagine I'm pulling myself up a rope or I'm rolling out of some place in order to, you know, some technique in order to imagine. Everybody can imagine just like that, you know. And once you realize that you're no longer here, well, then where are you? Use your intent. Your intent now can focus you to be wherever you want to do whatever you want. Do you want to heal? Do you want a remote view? Do you want to go talk to some other entity? You know, you can do any of those things once you disconnect from here, if your intent is still in charge. So we call it imagination, and it maybe is just showing us a very simple way to meditate, if you will. Although you're not staying in that focus and just experiencing it, you're taking charge of it with your imagination. If you just hung in that imaginative state without imagining anything, that would be a meditation state. You see? So it's all in the way we approach it and the names that we give it that's important. And the wonderful thing about imagination is it's just imagination. So there's no performance, you know, and there's no performance uh, fear. Am I doing it? Is this right? What do you mean doing it right? It's just imagination. Everybody's got an imagination. That's simple. It's just an imagination. So because we can write it off as not being important, it's easy. We don't have all these barriers up. But it's also very limited because we do have a belief that it doesn't go very far nor very deep, nor does it mean anything. So we never use it for anything very important to go very deep with it or doing with it because we've already have a belief that it's a very shallow kind of thing that's kind of meaningless. It's just mind games, you know, nothing important. Well, it could be that way. It could just be a mind game. It could not be anything important. It depends on what you do with it, right? It just depends on what you do with it. If you do useless stuff with it, then, you know, it's not all that important. If you, uh, you know, if all you do with it is, you know, imagine, you know, how you'll look if you have a green tie or a red tie, and that's all you do with your imagination, you're not getting much out of it, you see. It's a, it's a tool you have that you're basically wasting. So... There's the, you know, kind of the upside and the downside. The downside is you have a belief that it's not worth much, therefore you don't give it any credibility. You got the upside is that you don't have any investment or beliefs about it being a big deal or any technique or anything it's trivial to do. Eventually, you can do the out-of-body or the remote view or whatever just as easy as you can imagine something. When I do my uh, um, workshops where I try to help people do things like remote viewing and healing, one of the first things I do with them 
is a set of imagine. Imagine this, imagine that, and I have an imagine all sorts of things. And I imagine it in detail, and I imagine it with the senses. You know, imagine what this smells like and what this feels like and what that sounds like. So you get all your senses involved in your imagination. Going out of body isn't any harder than that. See, that's true, right? You can imagine anything anytime you want to. You can imagine when you're in a busy mall someplace and people are making noise and all around you, you can still imagine things. Eventually it gets no harder than that. Imagination is you're just putting your mind into a altered state where you are not connected to this reality frame. Now, if you don't do that, if you're using your imagination and you're still very much connected here, which probably would be the case if you were deciding whether to wear the green tie or the red tie, you'd, you'd be here. You wouldn't really be disconnected from here. Okay, well, that's not the imagination I'm talking about. I'm talking about an imagination where you disconnect from physical matter reality. In that case, you're out. When you're out, you're out. Now you can use your intent to go play or to go heal or to do what you want. So then it's no longer imagination. You know, then you start having performance problems. Uh, you know, am I doing it right? Is this real? Is this not real? And you start, you, you know, your intellect starts uh, all, you know, winding up around that axle and just let it go. Just experience. Do just what Josh did. Just follow what happens and uh, have an intent of where it is you'd like to go and why you'd like to go there. And if your reason of why you want to do this is because, wow, it'd be fun, don't expect any help or any encouragement you know, from the system. If you really want to learn and you really have a, a growth path here you're working on, you can expect help from the system. Just go with it. Don't analyze it. Months later, do analyze it. You don't want to spend lots of time doing things that are non-profitable. But you can't, you don't have enough data to analyze it until you've done it for some months. Trying to analyze it before you have enough data to actually analyze it effectively is a big incentive killer. It makes it not work. So just go with it. Yeah, that's, uh, see, our, our, our imagination is allowed to be clear. If we enter through a meditation state, we have to be foggy. Because, you know, meditation states have to be deep. And what does deep mean? Well, it means foggy. That's what it means. And that's how you know you're deep is how foggy it is. When it gets really, really foggy, you know you're deep. You see, we have these, we have these beliefs that just mess us up. So now we want to be so foggy because we want to get deep that we really can't function. So I just drift around in a fog and say, well, that wasn't much fun. You know, nothing really happened. Well, of course not. You weren't awake. You, you were drifting around, you know, in a fog because you needed to be deep. There's no need to be deep. <clears throat> All you need to do is let go. So it's just your awareness, not here. You see, you're not attached to anything here. That's a very profitable state. So that's a, this is a hang-up that a lot of people have. You know? Well, that was just my imagination. I wasn't really out of body. It was just I wasn't really talking to some other entity. That was just my imagination. Yeah, just your imagination. Well, that's good. Let it be your imagination. Don't worry about that. Move on. Go with it. Experience it. Interact with it. And months later, evaluate it. Was it a valuable thing? If it is, keep going with it. If it's not, let it go. Do something else. You see, that's the way to approach it. 
instead of saying, oh, was that a real out-of-body, was that just my imagination? You're just tripping over labels. So you'll, you'll know, you know, once you get, you know, and, and it's a beginner. As a beginner, you don't really know what you're doing or how you're doing it. It's all trial and error, so it's difficult. So somebody just can't give you a prescription and say, go do it, because it's your interpretation, your path. You have to, you have to do it on your own. But if you just do this, which seems like, oh, well, that's not anything. You know, that's just imagination. That'll help. Just work with that. Work with it, and you will learn. That's as good a way to, to learn as, as any. And most of the people who stumble into abilities to, um, I don't know, see or, you know, do paranormal things, they typically stumble into them through their imagination. They don't typically go one day and find out how to meditate and then start from there. I mean, sometimes, but often it starts in imagination. And then what they realize is that, hey, this imagination thing actually is delivering me. You know, it's delivering uh, real stuff. I'm getting information here in this imagination thing that is meaningful. It's more than imagination now. It's not just imagination. It's doing this. And they start to develop it. So typically, people who don't go the the spiritual route or the meditation route, they end up just naturally kind of falling through this meditation, through this uh, imagination route, and they find that it's working, that they're getting things, you see, and they didn't meditate or anything. Well, they did. They had to go into what we call a meditation state just to let everything in the physical reality disappear, detach from it. You can't do that if your mind's going, dip, 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 you know, all the time and whatever. You can't leave this reality because it's always, you know, chattering at you. So they had to do the same sort of things that you have to do in meditation to get there. They just didn't call it meditation. And I heard any number of people say, oh, I've been doing this for years, but, you know, I never called it meditation. Well, it doesn't have to. Those are labels. You can get there lots of different ways. So maybe this has helped because it, it kind of clears some of the some of the structure out of the way that people and labels and things and beliefs and expectations. And, uh, it's really simpler than you think. Exactly the the way I go ahead. Uh, the way I found it out also for myself, it's so simple that I couldn't believe it. Uh, we have to complicate everything. We need to have something different, completely different from our experience, because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be an OBE. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so and, and basically, uh, this is what I found out. First of all, uh, I can be not completely relaxed to be in the, let's say, nicer state, maybe in meditation state, still foggy. And then, uh, uh, during these... Um, experiments with a, a small group of friends I discovered one morning which I found very unproductive because I was very um, much here more, more here than there so to speak with my imagination I found out that actually there I've had uh, two very significant data points uh, for me uh, and I, I thought, I thought uh, this experience was really lost uh, because I was so 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 much here I, I couldn't really concentrate on being there and uh, so I was jumping more here. And the second uh, thing that happened that also opened my eyes is uh, to really 
connect these dots with dots with with the, the word imagination. It's just imagining it uh, calmly and uh, let's say relaxed and playfully enough that it really becomes somewhat real, and then taking from it something that is, uh, is useful. Yeah, well, when it becomes somewhat real is when you let go of this physical reality, you see. So there's imagination and then there's imagination. So all imagination is not, you know, equivalent to, to this out-of-body and stuff. You know, there is imagination that's just centered here. That's one kind of imagination. But there is also imagination where you let go of this. And when you learn to let go of this, then that is a very similar thing. Let's just say they're cousins to the remote viewing, the, you know, the lucid dreaming, the out-of-body. They're all cousins to each other. They're all similar in, in, uh, in many ways. And most of the dissimilarities have to be with our beliefs about them, how we got there, our technique, and the restrictions we put on ourselves of what we think we can do with them. You know, that's, that's most of it. You know, like remote viewers for a long time were restricted to view something on, on the earth. They had to look at some kind of event going on on the earth. That's what remote viewers did. And now they go future, they go past, they do all kinds of things. They realize that, that believing that they were just looking at things on the planet was the only thing they could do. They could view things on the earth remotely. Well, that belief just locked them in and that's all they could do. You see, but now remote viewers have realized that they can go forward and backward in time. You can go, you know, in outer space. They can do different kinds of things. And it works as well as though they're just viewing things on the planet. But that was a restriction that they created in their own minds because of what they believed they were doing. They believed they were somehow remotely looking at places on the earth. So that's all they could do. It's the same thing. Now, if, you're, if your imagination is here and centered here and still stuck here, well, then you're just here. You can still have an imagination. Like I say, that's probably the red tie, you know, green tie thing. You can put both of those in your imagination, but that doesn't detach you from this reality frame. It's a different thing. So people who say, oh, well, that's easy then. I'll just use my imagination. Unless they can, in the process of that, detach from this frame, which is what you do in a meditation state, right? You detach from this frame, then it's not going to work for them. So I don't want to leave the impression that, Imagination is the same as out of body. I'm just saying that there are various pathways that you can go to get to the same kind of altered state. And you can do that through, you know, a meditation that doesn't have any mantra at all. It just lets your mind go, focuses elsewhere, and we call that imagination. You know, so there's all kinds of ways to meditate if you want. And what we call imagination is a, is a valid path. And it's it got advantages for several reasons. Your imagination is allowed to be clear. It doesn't have to be foggy. You see, we don't have a belief that foggy is better in an imagination. We have a belief that clear is better in imagination. So we don't have that problem. And uh, we don't have the, am I doing it right problem? Because everybody can imagine things, you know, there's nothing to that. So it eliminates some of the problems. But it has some limitations too because we believe it's not important and it doesn't go very far. So then it never is very important. It doesn't go very far because that's what our limitation is. We believe that. You see? So hopefully this will give some some of you a few, you know, and I say some of you, not just you here today, but the people that will listen to this on YouTube, kind of an aha moment of seeing a, a bigger picture here 
that uh, is, is easier than you think.